to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, August 7th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. National team of 52 scientists from 25 different institutions announced they've agreed on a standard plant DNA barcode. This means for the first time, scientists can start working towards creating a comprehensive global database of all plant life on Earth. Last Thursday, I sat down with Damon Little. He's part of the group of scientists who just made this announcement, and he's the assistant curator of bioinformatics at the New York Botanical Garden. This week, it's all about plants. Learn about the genes scientists have isolated for the DNA barcode database and exactly what this means for science. Now, DNA barcoding. What is DNA barcoding? The idea behind DNA barcoding is a lot like the barcodes you see in the supermarket. The idea is that if you have a reference that you can scan, in this case a little bit of DNA, you can look it up in a database and find out what it is that that belongs to, just like the numbers They look up in the computer at the supermarket, and it tells you what product it is. So how long have we been using DNA barcoding for? Well, officially, the first paper that uses barcoding in the current sense, I think, was 2002. Although people have been using DNA, in fact, called it DNA barcoding at one point in the early 80s since we could sequence DNA. So basically since 1978, DNA barcoding has been done at some form or another. And was the first DNA barcoding done on plants, or was it an animal thing first? Actually, the first non-barcoding barcoding, barcoding, I guess, was um, done on bacteria. Glamorous. Oh, yes. Well, you know, they're more interesting in terms of evolutionary questions since all multicellular life came from unicellular life, and that was one of the questions that they were interested in. So how long have we been looking at scientists been trying to categorize plants using their, their DNA? I think the first paper I know of that uses DNA for classification is from the early 70s. Diana Stein at Mount Holyoke College, she was looking at fern evolution and used (laughs) DNA-DNA hybridization, which is before you could sequence the best you could probably do to figure out how similar things were based on their DNA. Wow. And so basically, as the science has gotten better, you guys have been able to get more detailed looking at the sequences and... Uh, Yeah, I mean, as sequencing has progressed, it used to be that to sequence something meant a couple weeks of lab work, some radiation, and, you know, maybe a sequence if you were lucky. And now it's the kind of thing that if I really needed to sequence something for you, I could take a little piece of plant and four hours later come back with a sequence. You know, when I'm out in the woods looking at the forest, to me there's a big difference visually between plants. But that's not the kind of difference you're trying to identify, right? You're looking at plants that are really difficult to tell apart. Well, not just that. I mean, a lot of what we're looking at are plants that just don't have the parts that you would normally use to tell apart. When someone grinds a plant into a fine powder and sells it to you in a capsule, even the best botanist is a little stumped as to what that is. Sometimes we can figure it out, but it's usually a lot of work. So this is really aimed at fragmentary specimens, incomplete specimens. I mean, we get a lot of sterile specimens that it's a perfectly nice plant, but, you know, something like 70% of plants have alternate simple leaves. And a lot of times someone hands you and that's about all you can say about it. So really, once you develop this database that you can look up 
anything with, it will have sort of like a multitude of applications. Everything from people doing herbal supplement um, certification to say that what's on the label is actually what's in the jar to sustainable wood to figure out that the species that it is supposed to be is actually what it was and it wasn't illegally cut to identifying food products. You know, if you would like to know that this really is pumpkin, for instance, that's in this canned pumpkin you'll find that out. Now, is there a demand for that? There's quite a demand for the herbal supplements part, um, mostly because there have been people who've gotten sick or died from taking herbal supplements that seemed like they should be perfectly fine but weren't. And a lot of times it's because there's either a related species or something that's completely unrelated but just looks a lot like the other thing that someone harvested and packaged up. And once you have it in pill form, you really can't tell what it is. And so people buy it, take it, and then sometimes get sick. Do we have any idea of how many land plant species there are? Well, we can guess. There are about 400,000, 450,000. We're not totally certain. Obviously, not everything's been described, but that's approximately the right number. And now, that's obviously not including aquatic plants. Well, those, there's some aquatic plants that are in that. So when we say land plants, we're not meaning plants that are actually physically on the land. We're meaning plants that are technically known as embryophytes, so that produce an embryo um, through our and have a particular architecture to their reproduction. So, for instance, water lilies are an aquatic plant, but those are land plants in the sense that they're derived from the plants that first pioneered um, living on land. So what would be an example of an aquatic plant? Uh, you mean a non-land plant yes. that's aquatic? Yes, um, yes, a non-land plant that's aquatic. Um, so various seaweeds. Um, okay. Pretty much if you go to a Japanese restaurant and order a <laughs> seaweed salad, almost all of that is non-land plant. <laughs> okay, so really, are there are there more land plants than there are non-land aquatic plants? Um, that's a good question. We... Historically, for some reasons that I can't explain, algal diversity has not been very well studied. I think it's not as sexy, and it's a little bit harder. <laughs> and so there may be many more of those than we know of. Mm -hmm. I mean, we kind of think that there aren't very many of them, but it's also not very well studied. And so is that part of the reason why this DNA barcoding project is only creating a database for land plants? Um, no, it, it has more to do with the... Uh, nature of molecular evolution, I guess, is the best way to answer that. So the reason why we had to pick markers for land plants is because the marker for animals, the cytochrome oxidase 1 gene, is in the mitochondria of animals. And in plants, the mitochondria, although is present, it evolves in a very strange way. So the sequence does not evolve very quickly. If you go out and pull two random land plants, I think they have about, you know, 98% sequence identity in the cytochrome oxidase one. There just isn't very much variation. However, the structure of the mitochondrial genome in plants evolves very quickly. And that makes it challenging in the sense that if one wants to do PCR, which is the process of isolating the gene that you're interested in, you have to have primers. And those primers have to match something that's stable. And in most plant mitochondria, getting primers that actually work consistently is very difficult because the structure is changing all the time. So we had to do something else. And the obvious other answer is the other organelle in plants, which is the plastid, which gets called the chloroplast, occasionally the chromoplast. Those are two different morphs of the plastid. We've been using plastid DNA in plant systematics for a long time because it's easy to work with for the most part. And because it's very well known, it gets easier to work with. And so that's the reason for picking a marker within the plastid DNA. In the non-land plant plants, uh, <laughs> 
some of them will be perfectly useful for using cytochrome oxidase 1, mm -hmm. um, the ones that aren't very closely related to the land plants. The ones that are more closely related to the land plants will probably end up using the land plant barcoding markers, although that is not yet to be, has not been determined yet. Okay, so what's kind of really interesting about this project is that for a long time, there have been all these groups working separately and having their own little se secret sequences to create you know, their own way of identifying. When you guys all came together to compare, did it turn out you were all looking at the same small area or did you all have sort of different ways of... Uh, well, this is, uh, I don't know how to say this. This is kind of a long and convoluted explanation, but here it goes. So <laughs> what happened in animals, there was a region that was just decreed to be the animal barcode, the cytochrome oxidase 1. In plants, it was clear that wouldn't work, and so everyone and their third cousin came up with a suggestion about what to use. And sometimes that suggestion was based on, um, you know, one person discovered or, you know, designed primers for that region a long time ago, and that's their favorite region, and they're going to keep using it. And other people, it's because it's a region that's worked well in the past for them for other projects. There were a few bioinformatic attempts to identify the best region based on whole plastid sequences, and at least two independent attempts that I know of. And both of them, of course, came to radically different um, conclusions. And a lot of that has to do with, first of all, the sequences they were looking at were different. So that's the first problem. Then the second problem is that the way they chose to analyze the data was completely different. And, of course, no one was sharing data with each other. And when people aren't sharing data, or at least a common analysis, it's very difficult to really judge anything. So really the point of the plant working group coming together in a meeting that happened um, last September in Edinburgh was to agree on a common set of criteria. <laughs> and as uh, simple as that sounds, it took two days and a lot of arguing to just come, okay, these are the rules about how we're going to judge regions. And then after that, it became much easier to figure out which region was the best amongst the candidates. Why has it been such an insular sort of investigation, I guess, for so long? Why has it taken you guys so long to collaborate? Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, there are a lot of strong personalities in this group, I guess is the best way to say it. And there was also a fair amount of jealousy, I think. Early on, a couple of people in this group were funded to find the plant barcode. And everyone else who was interested in plant barcoding who was not in that group of funded people immediately, you know, factioned separately. And some of them factioned amongst themselves for other reasons. And so you end up with at least four major groups of people that were upset with each other for really no reason at all. But, you know, it, it's kind of small stakes and people get upset. <laughs> I want to know about these regions that you guys agreed on. <laughs> okay. So how to explain this? So there were seven candidate regions, and you can break the candidate regions down into regions that are protein coding and regions that are intergenic spacers. So there were three intergenic spacers, and then the remaining four were protein coding. What's an intergenic spacer? So in the plastid genome, like mm -hmm. most other genomes, there are regions that are coding, so protein coding regions, and then there's some space between them in the DNA sequence, which often has a function but is not for protein coding. And those two classes of regions evolve very differently. The protein coding regions tend not to change much in length, and the sequence change is a little bit more predictable. Certain positions in the codon change more than others. The spacer regions, on the other hand, 
tend to change radically in length quite frequently. And usually their function is tied to very small pieces that either have to be a certain distance from some other piece or maintain a certain sequence for a protein to bind to, for instance. And so you get little bits that are highly conserved, and then you have basically random, and then a little bit that's highly conserved again. And in theory, that would be probably the best thing for a barcode, because what you want is you want something that's different among species. So you want something without a lot of evolutionary constraint on it. And so you had three of these spacer sections and four protein regions. Right. And so what, yeah, how did you narrow it down from there? We agreed to three basic criteria. The first one was whether or not the region was physically present or not (laughs) in all plants or most plants. And that seems pretty simple, but the problem is that we don't know the complete plastid genome sequences of pretty much all plants. I mean, we know I think there are 120 or something that are known some, somewhere in that neighborhood, a few hundred at most. And so we can kind of guess based on our idea of evolutionary relationships, well, probably everything in this large group is like this because we have two members of the group that are the same. And, you know. and so we had that problem. And then you have the further problem that it's not just if it's there, it's that you can actually do PCR so that when you try to amplify it to isolate the region of DNA to be sequenced, you actually get a product rather than nothing. Because if you get nothing, then you're stuck doing the old several days um, worth of lab work to get the piece of DNA out, and no one wants to do that. So that was our first criterion, just whether or not it was there and we could find it. Um, The second criterion was, once we got it, could we actually sequence it? One of the problems that I say would be acute in plastid DNA, but is present in all DNA, particularly in spacers, and it has to do with our current sequencing technology, which is based on what Fred Sanger won the Nobel Prize for in 1978. If there are regions of the DNA that are highly repetitive, and by highly repetitive I mean basically the same letter for eight or ten bases in a row, the DNA polymerase that's doing the sequencing cannot get through that without making mistakes, a lot of mistakes. And so what happens when you read the sequence, it's perfectly fine to that point, and then after that it just turns to complete garbage. There's not a lot we can do about that. Um, Certainly there are new sequencing technologies that are being developed, some of which may avoid this problem, but it's not really clear that they will, and they're certainly not here today and not for $2.10. So... The question is whether we could sequence them, and part of this is that CBOL, which is the Consortium for the Barcode of Life, has established a set of standards for barcode data for cytochrome oxidase 1. And so cytochrome oxidase 1, you have to have a certain bit of what's called bidirectional coverage. So when you sequence DNA, you sequence one of the two strands, you know, the DNA is paired, and you sequence it from one direction, and then you sequence the same piece of DNA from the other direction on the other strand, put them together in a computer, and make sure that both strands gave you the same sequence. And CBOL has decreed that you have to have, I think it's 80% overlap for cytochrome oxidase. So in other words, you have to basically be able to sequence the region in both directions pretty consistently. If you don't have that, then it's not considered a DNA barcode. Okay. It's a cytochrome oxidase one sequence, but it's not a barcode. So we wanted to make sure that the regions we picked would meet CBOL standard. And then the third criterion, which you might think could be the most important one, which is how well do these regions actually tell species apart? So those were our three criteria that we went in with. And of course, all three of them have all sorts of nuances like, well, how different do things have to be to be considered different? And, you know, that sort of thing. So we ironed that out and we did an analysis and 
The truth of it is that the universality, which was the first criterion, was assessed in two ways. It was assessed first by everyone in the group just trying things and saying, well, this works 70% of the time for me or whatnot. And then it was also assessed by two groups, one from the Royal Botanic Gardens Q and one from the Smithsonian Institution sending a plate. A plate is a 96-well piece of plastic. And so there's 96 DNA samples, and they sent those plates of DNA to Guelph, which is kind of the center for barcoding. And the idea behind this was that there was some controversy because some people get very good numbers for universality, and then some other people take the same set of primers and supposedly the same PCR conditions and can't replicate their results. And it was decided, well, Guelph doesn't really have a horse in this race, so they can be an unbiased arbiter. So everyone will send DNA samples to Guelph, and they will decide the numbers that they're going to get. And those numbers more or less correlated to what other people were getting on average, but it was good to have a third party involved. So we had the numbers from Guelph's plates for universality, plus we had the numbers that everyone had generated under all sorts of methods. You know, everyone has their own PCR secrets, so... And so then you came down to two, you finally got your two sequences. Um, sort of. Okay. <laughs> so we had the quality numbers, and then Guelph used those plates to assess the sequence quality. And so they gave us numbers on how many reads actually were bidirectional and high enough quality. And so then there was the species discrimination part. Meantime, the data had been compiled. Um, Laura Forrest, who is a Pete Hollingsworth postdoc at Edinburgh, had compiled all the data from everyone who had any data on barcoding regions, and she sent it to me and John Spouch at NCBI. And so our job was then to try to figure out what was actually useful in species discrimination. And we both had our kind of our own idea about what would be the best way to determine this, which... I think in the end our ideas actually completely overlapped and became the same idea, but in the beginning we sort of had different ideas. So we did the data analysis, and so we brought that to the meeting and showed what we thought were best in terms of discrimination. And the unfortunate part about it is that if you look at the figure in the paper, the discrimination values, first of all, if you use just one marker, which would be ideal because then you don't have to do as much work, none of them do as well as using all seven of them together. Now, some of them come kind of close, and a few are very obviously nowhere near, and you can probably discount them on that alone. And if you look at combinations of two markers, which would be the next least amount of work, I guess, (laughs) if you look at those, a lot of them approximate, well, several of them approximate what you get using all seven of them together. A few of them are far below that, but most of them are close. And so the question comes, how do you choose amongst the ones that more or less approximate using all seven? And that's where the sequence quality came in, because we thought that, okay, if we're not going to gain anything from any of these combinations in terms of species discrimination, we should pick the regions that give us the highest quality sequences so that people don't have to resequence things very often. And that turned out to be RBCL and MATK. The interesting thing about this is RBCL is a gene that has been used quite a lot in plant systematics. And it sort of has the reputation of not being that variable. And some of that is a reputation that's deserved, and some of that is a reputation because it was the first gene used in plant systematics extensively. And, of course, the people who are using it wanted to say, see, this gene is not, doesn't change very much, so it tells us the truth or at least a very good idea about plant evolution because it doesn't change very much. And so 
that argument has sort of been beaten into our heads, whether or not it was true or not. And so a lot of people were very reluctant to work with RBCL for this particular project because of that. RBCL has the nice property, though, that no matter what, you can amplify it. It's very easy to amplify, and it sequences beautifully. The one problem with it is that there are some plants, we estimate about 10% of land plants, are somewhere in the grade between being completely autotrophic. So in other words, being able to feed themselves just from sunlight alone and water, carbon dioxide, I guess. You need to have those three things. To the other end of the spectrum, which is being completely parasitic and requiring another plant or a fungus to feed them. And those plants, that when they become parasitic, they lose the ability to photosynthesize, usually. Not all, but most of them can't photosynthesize. And RBCO codes for a protein, which is the first gene used in the photosynthetic process. So if it is not needed, of course, the gene usually isn't there, and of course you can't amplify it. Um, one of the interesting things about that, I think, is RBCL is the most abundant protein on Earth. It's something like 50% of uh, most plants' protein, if you extract it, is RBCL because it's used so much by the plant. And then the, the other one, the M... The MATK. So the other gene is MATK, and it's a gene of interesting function. It was discovered sort of accidentally in the sense that when people sequence a region, you can kind of tell that a bit of DNA codes for protein based on patterns in the sequence. And it was discovered that, oh, here's this region that codes for something, and no one knew what it was for the longest time. We still don't quite understand what it does, but it seems to be very important. In every plant plastid that we've sequenced, it's there. It seems to be have something to do with making messenger RNA or RNA that's being transcribed into a form that can actually be translated into protein. So you can see that would probably be important. So basically, these are two sequences that you can find in almost every plant. And your goal is to go through all the plants in the world and get those sequences and put them into a database. Yes. And then where is the database going to be housed? So there is already a database for DNA sequences. It's called GenBank. It's run by NIH, the National Institutes of Health. It's part of NIH. is called the National Library of Medicine. And they run GenBank. And GenBank was established long ago when DNA sequences first started coming out to be a central repository of DNA sequences of all kinds. And you find everything there from bacteria to animals to plants and even synthetic sequences that people have dreamed up for various purposes. And so the idea is that all of the sequences will be put there because it's publicly accessible and it's maintained by the government and they've made a commitment to keep the servers on so that the data will always be there for anyone who wants it. And this is going to be a globally accessible? Yeah, it's yeah. it's available on the internet and it has been, I'm not certain when they first went online, but at least 20 years, maybe a little bit more. Wow. And if you work with DNA as a scientist, you will go to GenBank if not daily, at least weekly, hmm. because it's you know kind of a reference database wow. that's very useful. Wow. Damon, thanks so much for talking to me. That was great. Oh, no problem. Thanks for tuning in. Can't get enough of science in the city? Why don't you try following us on Twitter? www.twitter.com slash sci and the city. Or you can find us on Facebook and find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. We need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our brand new website. For more information on Academy membership, 
or to support Science in the City today. Log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.